Good morning once again. Good to see everybody this morning. We are going to be addressing a couple of scriptures, but the one we'll spend time, the most time reading uh, is in Leviticus chapter 25 this morning, verses 23 through 28. And all God's people said, yes, Leviticus. It's my favorite book. Um, we are continuing our series through Micah chapter 6, verse 8. Uh, we started last week with kind of an introduction to uh, that, that passage in particular. Uh, and now over the next three weeks, starting today, we're going to flesh out uh, each of those elements within Micah 6.8 uh, to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with our God. Uh, so today, thinking about doing justice. As I was thinking about doing justice, one of the things that you often do uh, in any line of, of research or work when you're trying to figure out what a word means or what an idea means uh, and what pastors love to do uh, is to pull out a dictionary and to figure out exactly what the word means. Uh, when I looked at different dictionary definitions, the word uh, justice was defined in, well, some unsatisfactory ways. It was, you know, something as simple as the quality of being just. Uh, anytime I get, I read a definition like that in the dictionary, I want to say, okay, thanks, dictionary. That was a whole lot of help. Uh, justice is the quality of being just. Yeah, I think I kind of figured that one out. Uh, but what is, is that? Um, and then it mostly dealt with criminal justice. Uh, it mostly dealt with uh, kind of equal pay for, uh, you know, meeting kind of both sides being equal. That's the idea that we think of, right? And, and like I said last week, when we think of justice, we usually tend to at least in the modern American world, we usually tend to think of criminal justice and we think of people being punished for their deeds uh, and, and those who have been victimized receiving justice by those who did the victimization being held accountable. That's usually how we think of justice. The Holman Bible Dictionary, though, defines justice as this. Order that God seeks to reestablish in his creation where all people receive the benefits of life with him. And the Holman Christian Standard, uh, the Holman Bible Dictionary goes on to say that there are two standards by which justice is gauged throughout Scripture. And the first, the one that we're most familiar with most likely, is the standard by which penalties are assigned. And there's a lot of that in Scripture uh, about exactly how when there's a wrong done, what should be done in response to that wrong. And then there's the second standard by which advantages are to be handed out. So there's the standard by which penalties are to be dealt out, and there's the standard by which advantages are to be handed out, and kind of a, an even plumb line uh, being what keeps all of that together. Isaiah 28, 17 talks about justice and the idea of this plumb line. Uh, and anyone who's done any sort of building or framing or anything like that, you know that that's absolutely necessary when you start any project to make sure that everything is on plumb, to make sure that everything is square. Uh, over the last couple of weeks, Cheryl and I have been building our boys a fort in the backyard, Fort Hammerhead. That's what uh, Corbin wanted to name it. Uh, it has uh, little vinyl sharks stuck all to it. It's got a rock wall. I'm, I'm really surprised. Uh, uh, Cheryl and I both, uh, I'm, we're surprised that we were able to pull it off. Let's just put it that way. Um, and our marriage is, is still good, uh, even though we did all of that together. Uh, as a matter of fact, it's better. We actually worked really well together on this one, which again was kind of a surprise because we're both uh, a little stubborn. Uh, and, and really the only like disagreement or, or point of contention that we had was while we were talking about it beforehand. And Cheryl was telling me, and I'm 
telling me how I needed to do something, and I, being a man, didn't want to listen to how I needed to do something. Can I get an amen or an OB from the men in the house? Um, I'm going to go ahead and tell you first, she was right, okay? She was definitely right. Uh, we asked some other people to make sure she was right. She asked some other people to make sure she was right. Um, and what it was, and you're going to, some of you are going to nod your head at my stupidity, but that's okay. Um, shake your head, I should say is we were trying out how to figure out to make the, it was a six by six square is what we wanted to make, trying to figure out how to make sure that it was square. And she was trying to explain to me that you have to use the Pythagorean theorem, which I'm familiar with. A squared plus B squared equals C squared. That's how you figure out the hypotenuse of a right angle triangle, right? If you remember that from science, from math class back in the day. And I was thinking to myself, I don't really care what C is. I know what A is. I know what B is. It's six foot and it's six foot. And as long as I can make sure that everything's six foot, then it'll be square. That's what I was thinking in my head. Now, I realize the error of my ways now, but in the moment where I was defending my case, I wasn't ready to let go, right? You know when you're in an argument and you know you're wrong, but you keep going just because you don't want to admit that you're wrong? Maybe none of you sink to that level, uh, but that's where I was, okay? And then finally, I gave in and I said, okay, yeah, you're right. It could be six by six by six and still be a parallelogram rather than a square. So I learned that about building and framing from my wife. Uh, it certainly made me feel wonderful as a man. But you know what it means to get everything on plumb. And if you don't have everything square to begin with, if you're like me and you just say, well, that looks square, then chances are things are going to get off later on. It's important for everything to be plumb. And that's kind of the idea, or one of the main ideas that holds the Old Testament together, is God, God's justice, and everything being held plumb, everything being held equal, everything being as it is supposed to be. And the idea of the sacrificial system, much of what the Old Testament is built on, is God seeking to, through these different systems, reestablish order, reestablish justice with an unjust, chaotic creation. Because mankind had chosen to step out of God's justice, and now God is seeking to reestablish justice through the people of Israel and through the way that he interacts with the people of Israel always pointing forward to some great justifier. Now, let me bring it back home to us. Have you ever regretted something that you have done so deeply that you wished you had a time machine that you could go back and undo it? Because in your way of thinking, there is no way to make things right without undoing what was done. Some things get so broken that from a human perspective, one cannot simply make amends and everything be okay. Justice in such a case seems like an impossibility. For instance, if you have ever had someone taken from you, not by a sickness, but by the mistake of another or by the anger of another, thinking like a murder kind of situation, there is nothing other than that person not being murdered anymore, other than that being undone, there is nothing that is going to make that right for the victim. Uh, we might hold the other person accountable, send them to life in prison, perhaps execute them, but still even that is not going to bring the murdered person back to life. And so we wonder in our flawed human thinking in our fallen world, how then can we, as Micah says, do justice? How can we seek after justice? How can we champion justice? 
How, Micah, even though we know what we're supposed to do, like you told us, can we do justice? And my contention to you, and we'll get there a little bit later this morning, is that the only way to do justice is with Jesus. And we're going to see how, even through the lens of Leviticus this morning. So before we open our Bibles and read from Leviticus 25, let's pray together. Father, again, we thank you for this time and for this space. God, I thank you for everyone that is here with us in body and everyone that is here with us in spirit, uh, watching online. God, I pray that you would unite us through your Holy Spirit and God, that through your uniting Holy Spirit, that you would speak a word to us this morning. God, that you would remove distraction and disorder from our mind so that we might see exactly what it is that your spirit is trying to communicate today. God, I pray that your spirit would do a work of transformation within us. God, I pray that you would help us to see what real justice is and how to do it and achieve it and seek it in our world. I pray that in Jesus' name, amen. Leviticus chapter 25, verses 23 through 28, kind of picking up in the middle of an idea. I'm going to circle back around and explain the context, but let's go ahead and read the scripture. Again, this is Leviticus 25, starting in verse 23. The land shall not be sold in perpetuity, for the land is mine. For you are strangers and sojourners with me, and in all the country you possess, you shall allow a redemption of the land. If your brother becomes poor and sells a part of his property, then his nearest redeemer shall come and redeem what his brother has sold. If a man has no one to redeem it and then himself becomes prosperous and finds sufficient means to redeem it, let him calculate the years since he sold it and pay back the balance to the man to whom it was sold and then return to his property. But if he does not have sufficient means to recover it, then what he sold shall remain in the hand of the buyer until the year of Jubilee... In the Jubilee, it shall be released, and he shall return to his property. Now, I really could have read the entire chapter, uh, or at least verses uh, 8 through the end of the chapter, to talk about this idea that is going behind the passage here. This idea is the idea, you heard me say it in this passage, the idea of Jubilee. The passage I read is just one kind of specific way that the year of Jubilee was to be contextualized, was to be carried out amongst the Israelite people. Um, let me give you some context of the whole chapter, really, though. In, in Leviticus 24, 17, through the end of the chapter, so the last part of Leviticus 24, the chapter preceding this chapter on the Jubilee, uh, we have a word about retributive justice, meaning um, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. Uh, that idea, that if someone does something, you should do to him an equal measure. Uh, now, um, that's often portrayed in our society today as, uh, as, as brutal kind of punishment, but in in, in this day and age, it was extending something to the one who had done wrong. Because a lot of times, justice didn't fit the crime. Uh, someone would do something and they would be punished too harshly. And so this kind of justice is saying, well, whatever that person did, that's done back to them. Nothing more, nothing less. That's the kind of justice that is set up for the Israelites to follow. And then in chapter 26, we also have hints of justice and what that looks like in that we see God basically articulate through a long chapter of 
in Leviticus 26 that those who are obedient to him will receive blessings. Kind of a, a quid pro quo, quo kind of idea. That if you do this, then I will bless you. If you don't do this, then you won't receive my blessings. As a matter of fact, if you don't do what I ask you to or if you're disobedient to what I ask you to do, you will receive curses, you will receive bad things instead of good things. And so in between these two ideas of, of justice, both of those are ideas of justice, that if you do something wrong, you get met with equal punishment. And uh, justice with God, if you obey him and are obedient to him, you'll get blessed. Uh, and if you don't, you'll get cursed. In the middle of that, we have this passage, this story of what the Jubilee is all about. Now, real quickly, I want to kind of look at what this idea of Jubilee means, and then we're going to apply it to the idea of justice and us in the 21st century. Uh, in, in the first seven verses of chapter 25, um, we see the idea of the Sabbath year dealt with. We also see that in Exodus 23, and the Sabbath year is basically, farmers know this, on the seventh year you allow the land to lay fallow uh, so that it might uh, replenish itself, uh, that the same way that humanity needs rest on the seventh day, the land needs rest as well, and so you let it rest on the seventh day. Uh, on the seventh year, excuse me. You don't plan anything that year. But because God is faithful, uh, there will be produce coming from the land anyway, even though you didn't plant to take care of you during that seventh year. And then in verses 8 through 12, we see that idea expanded to the idea of not only every seventh year is a Sabbath year, but every seventh set of seven years, there's a tongue twister for you, every seventh set of seven years becomes this year of the Jubilee, this Sabbath year of Sabbath years, the 49th or 50th year, if you will. Uh, um, and the word jubilee, by the way, comes from a word relating to an animal's horn or a ram's horn, which would likely have been blown, as it's articulated in Leviticus 25, at the beginning of this year, which was on, by the way, again, the seventh cycle of seven years, and it started on the Day of Atonement, which was a high Sabbath day, a seventh day of the week in the seventh month of the year. Seven is being repeated often to remind us of this idea of God's completion about rest, allowing the land to rest, and allowing even the system of the way they did everything to rest. And just like on the Sabbath day, during the year of Jubilee, there was to be no, no sowing or reaping. Not only that, but all land would revert to its original owner. Uh, there's some, some, some gray area articulated in the last part of 25 when you deal with cities within walls and homes within walls. But beyond that, almost everything went back to its original owner, went back to the original tribe. Uh, anyone who had debts, uh, anyone who sold themselves into slavery, uh, that debt was forgiven and they were able to return to their own home, to their own place. In verses 13 through 17 in chapter 25, we get the, uh, uh, the, the rules on buying and selling. Um, that not only was this day important, but anytime that you bought land, you should buy in relation to the Jubilee. And so if you sold somebody a piece of land and it was year one, like Jubilee was last year, then you would basically be giving them a 49-year lease uh, and they would pay accordingly. But if you sold it when the Jubilee was five years away, you would only be giving them a five-year lease and so you would sell it for much less. And the idea that the land would eventually revert back to the original owner. Uh, verses 18 through 22, we see again God's promises. If people are obedient to this, what will happen? 
verses 29 through 34. There's more rules on buying and selling, like I said, especially for people living in cities. And then in chapter 25, excuse me, verse 25 and onward uh, through the rest of the, of the 25th chapter, it deals mostly with people that have gotten so in debt that they've sold themselves into servitude, um, that on the year of Jubilee, if there's no one left to redeem them, if they don't have somebody that's a brother, uh, they'll have somebody that knows them, a friend that would come and redeem them and buy them out of slavery. On the year of Jubilee, their debt should be forgiven and they should be able to go back to their original land. So it's this wonderful idea of the plumb line being restored, of everything being put back to the way that it used to be. That's the idea of the Jubilee. Jubilee was an attempt to restore God's way. It was a reminder that the land did not belong to people, but belonged to God, that he alone was the creator of the land. And not only as the creator of the land, but in the Jewish people in the Jewish nation, the one who distributed the land amongst the 12 tribes to begin with, all of this came from God. And so it was never supposed to be undone. And anytime that land was sold, this tribe sold to the, you know, somebody in this tribe, eventually that was supposed to go back to the way that it was in the beginning. And not only did all the land belong to God, but all the people belong to God as well. No one should own a brother or sister. No one should own another Jewish person. That's said in this. Uh, They should serve you until the time of Jubilee, and then they should go back. It was a fresh start. It was a way to try to go back to even kill, to go back to the way things were. Jubilee was an attempt to do what retributive or punitive justice, eye for an eye, could not do. An eye for an eye, guess what? The original eye doesn't miraculously return. Two people are left without an eye and an eye for an eye, right? And now there's justice and that makes sense and there's a place for that. And we still need that kind of retributive justice somewhat in our culture today. We can debate exactly how to apply that on another time. But what Jubilee tried to do is to do what that couldn't do, to restore the eye, to undo the wrongs to reestablish God's order. Punitive justice definitely has and had its place in our fallen world, but ultimately justice as complete restoration of what has been ruined is never achieved without something like the Jubilee. The Jubilee was an attempt to keep people balanced. If land can't be owned in perpetuity, then there's a ceiling on wealth it's not unregulated, monopolistic capitalism where anybody who's anybody can buy up everything that's there, have a monopoly on and be the one percenters and all the things that you hear talked about today. It's not that, no, but the land is also always restored to its original owner. So it's not anything like communism either. Each person has their own private land and God is restoring that. It is a completely different type of system. In the end though, As far as we can tell from scripture, except maybe one place in Chronicles, there doesn't ever appear to be any observance by the people of the year of Jubilee. Uh, We see other feast days celebrated in the life of the Israelite people. But what we don't see clearly, like I said, there's this one place in 2 Chronicles where maybe, but what we don't see clearly articulated in scripture, certainly after the exile, is the Jewish people celebrating, being obedient to this year of Jubilee. And so that begs the point, or that begs the question, what is the point? Why set this thing up if the people were never obedient to it? 
And you could see why they wouldn't be obedient to it, right? It's, it's pretty radical, uh, it, it, especially in, in our world today where land ownership is such a big deal. Uh, the idea that you would try to, to get ahead in the world by purchasing land, purchasing property, uh, you know, that's something that, that every advisor tells you to go for. Like Dave Ramsey and others will say, you know, land is always one of the best investments. In a world where, that, where our economic system is kind of built on that idea, the idea of every 50 years saying, okay, it's not mine anymore, we're giving it back to the original owner, that's pretty nerve-wracking, right? Uh, that, you know, I don't know if I could do that. That seems wrong. You know, you might think to, to the, the way that we view the world and the way that we work in the world. So but let's give the Jews a break on the fact that they did never really seem to observe this one. So again, what's the point? I will submit to you my idea on what the point is today. The point of the Jubilee was to show us and to show the Israelite people what God's justice really looked like. The restoration of all things. The restoration of the order that he created in Eden. The restoration of the order that he meant to create in the promised land, but the people were unfaithful to see all the way through. God reestablishing what had been thrown away by his prized creation, humanity. And, good news, to prepare us for the justice that is to come, for the jubilee that is to come. Now, this part, and I know I'm coming out of Leviticus, so you're going to say, how would you get excited about Leviticus? But this part excites me. The jubilee to come is what I want to focus on for the rest of our time. Because in Luke chapter 4, Jesus stands before a crowd of people in his own hometown. And some scholars think that the reason why he was in his hometown is because, even though the Jews didn't know it because they didn't honor it, that that year might have actually been the year of Jubilee. They just didn't know it. It might have been the 49th year, the Sabbath year of Sabbath years. And Jesus stands before the crowd, and in Luke 14, 18, and Luke, Luke 4, 18 and 19, he says these words, and many of you know it, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he anointed anointed me to, to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Most scholars agree that when Jesus announced this, not only was he declaring some of the things that he would be doing, freeing the oppressed, giving sight to the blind, taking care of those who were in need, but he was also echoing all the way back to Leviticus 25 when he says to announce the favorable year of our Lord, that he was coming to establish a jubilee. That might even be more likely if we realize that in the Babylonian era, that kings, when they would step into the throne, when they would ascend into power, would often apply jubilee principles in order to establish the beginning of their reign. They would go in and they would say, okay, we're going, we're scratching everything that the last king did and we're putting everything back to the way that it used to be. Uh, we're, we're, we're letting land go back to its owner. We're freeing captives, all of those sorts of things. Those things were done even in Babylonian, even in secular societies to announce the reign of a new king. Guess what? When Jesus steps to the platform in Luke 4, there's a new king on the scene and there's a new kingdom about to be realized. And so he comes and he says, not only from biblical perspective, but also looking at the world and how kingships were done, he says a new reign is coming and here's what my reign is going to look like. Freedom for the oppressed, sight for the blind, 
God has come through me to announce the favorable year of our Lord. It would be through Jesus that God would finally restore everything to the way way that it was supposed to be all along. It would be through Jesus and through Jesus alone that God would show us what Jubilee looks like, what justice actually looks like, a justice that you and I cannot get on our own, cannot find on our own, cannot earn on our own. It would happen only through Jesus. Now I'm going to go back even further in the Old Testament. Genesis chapter 3, verse 22 Uh, Verse 24, excuse me, the last verse in Genesis chapter 3. Adam and Eve have sinned. God has doled out the punishment upon the serpent, upon the woman, and upon the man. And then it's time to move on. Kicks them out of the Garden of Eden. Uh, They're left to go wandering in the wilderness. And then we see these words written. He drove out the man. God drove out the man. And at the east end of the Garden of Eden... He placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to what? To the tree of life. When humanity sinned and fell, it gave up many of God's blessings, but one amongst those was eternal life. And by God removing them from the presence and then guarding the presence of the tree of life, God was taking away that blessing from them. Or should I say God was allowing humanity to give that blessing away through their own sinful willingness to be disobedient towards him. That's how the creation narrative kind of ends. And then that order that God established in the Garden of Eden, uh, the order where man worked for seven days and received the, the, the blessings of his work without toil or the sweat of his brow, uh, where man and woman lived together in perfect harmony. And not only that, but they lived with creation in harmony. That, that perfect order that God created where they had access to eternal life, where they had access to all of his good blessings, where they had access to every tree in the garden except for the one that they weren't supposed to eat from. That perfect order in life was given away. That perfect order which saw them walking with God in a unfearful, unashamed way was lost. And so in the Old Testament, everything suddenly in Genesis 3 forward is unjust. The scales are tipped. Things aren't the way that they're supposed to be. And we see God working through the Old Testament to reestablish that. He goes through the sacrificial system. He goes through the Sabbath system, goes through the prophets, all these words that he speaks, ultimately pointing forward to something, the only thing, the only person that would actually tip the scales back in the way that they were supposed to be. And that's Jesus himself. Revelation 22, verses 1 and 2. Let's go from the beginning of the story to the ending of the story to see how God's justice worked. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, and flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the city, through the middle of the street of the city. Also, on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month, the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. I love this passage. 
And I think, honestly, the only time I've ever preached it is at funerals. So I'm excited to talk about it on a regular Sunday morning. I love this passage. Because what was taken away because of our sinfulness, Genesis 3, the cherubim, flaming sword, guarding the way back to the tree of life, God has extended back to humanity because not of anything we've done, but because Jesus has rebalanced the scales. He has reestablished the order. But it doesn't stop there. And this is the thing that gets all over me and fills me with, 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 with awe, to be perfectly honest. We overuse that word sometime in our world today, but this one fills me with awe. Because not only does God extend back to us the tree of life, but if you read that carefully, there's more than one tree of life in the heavenly city. It says on either side of the river is the tree of life and its leaves were for the healing of the nations. On either side of the river. And the way that I've always read that passage is there's one here and there's one there. Now that is awesome enough that God took what we gave away and then gave us back twofold what we didn't earn. Like what we threw away because of our sinfulness and all of us, not just Adam and Eve, all of us have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. All of us have participated in the sin of the first Adam. But because as Paul says, because of the work of the second Adam, we are restored. Things are reestablished. Order is back where it's supposed to be. And so not only do we get given back the tree of life that we gave away, we get another one in return. But here's an awesome thing that I read this week as I was studying this passage. Something that I had never thought before. That instead of it being two trees, what if it's an entire meadow full of the tree of life? And on either side of the river, you saw the tree of life. It would be like us looking upon a meadow full of fir trees or pine trees, and there's a great river running through it. And you would say on either side, there were pine trees. On either side, we saw this great tree that was taken away from us. And you get the idea, and oh my goodness, this gets all over me. You get the idea that when we are taken into glory, and for all those before us who have been taken into glory, not only are they given back the tree of life that we gave away, but they get to sit under the shade of thousands of trees of life that heal the nations in perpetuity forever and ever and ever. Is that not something to rejoice over, church? That is the kind of justice that God gives us. The year of Jubilee, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. That's why Jesus came. And the year of the Jubilee was the year of the Lord's favor. It was Jesus' way of hearkening back to this idea when all things were set right the way that they were supposed to be. And we have this passage on the Jubilee right in the middle of two different passages, one about retributive justice, eye for an eye, and one about quid pro quo justice. If you do this for me, I'll do this for you. And then God shows us through Jesus what he ultimately has in mind, and it's neither one of those things. It is to give us what we don't deserve and then some. And so the only way to do justice, the only way to make things right, to restore and reestablish reestablish the order of God is with Jesus. The only way to do Jesus, to do justice is with Jesus. There is no worldly way to make things right. Let me put it this way. The only being capable of reestablishing order in the universe is the one who established order in the first place, right? You and I don't know how to establish order in the universe. And so that is why you see hum, human justice systems, no matter how good they are, and I believe ours is the best in the world, you see human justice systems fall over and over and over again because they're human. They're not from the one who actually created justice in the first place. 
Another thing we often think of when we think of ju- uh, justice is the picture of, 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 of lady justice, you know, blindfolded with the scales in her hand, or maybe just the scales themselves and things tipping one way or the other and things being on balance, on level. I want you to, in your mind's eye, when you think of justice, instead of seeing the balance, instead of that, see the cross of Jesus Christ because that is the picture of what brings us justice, not making sure things weigh the same, but instead what Jesus did on the cross. You see, humanity and sin are agents of disorder. We, by our very nature, cannot produce order. We are agents of disorder. Only God can produce order. Therefore, and this is what the gospel is, this is what Jesus did on the cross, therefore God took all disorder upon himself in Jesus so that he could do what he alone could do, which is destroy injustice, disorder, and chaos, and right the scales once and for all. Don't you see the beauty of what God has done? that the only one who could actually perform justice is the only one who has ever really been wronged. The only innocent creature to ever exist is the only one who could actually make justice happen. And so the only innocent creature against whom we have sinned decided to enter in to our sin, to take our guilt upon himself and to destroy it once and for all. That is God's justice. That is the justice of Jesus Christ. That is the justice that we are being asked to do through Micah 6, 8. What humanity, what creation, The creation of God was unwillingly subjected to sin and disorder. And God's answer to that was to send his only begotten and willingly subject him to sin and disorder so that sin and disorder might be destroyed once and for all. This is the gospel story. And in a way, through God, Jesus doesn't just establish justice. He establishes super justice, uber justice, mega justice, whatever you want to to use. There's a a passage in Romans 8 where Paul says that we are more than overcomers, uh, that we are more than conquerors, Paul says. In the Greek, that word is upernikomen, which is super victors, super conquerors. I I get the same kind of mindset with this justice, that what Jesus gives us is justice on steroids. It's more than anything just that we could ever think of. It's something worth celebrating. The justice that God gives us, something we don't deserve. But then we still have the question, okay, Jesus is the only one who could pull justice off. So how do we do justice today? Should we just accept that things will only be just in heaven and hope that we get there quickly? No. Because Jesus told people who were following him around in the Gospels that the kingdom of heaven is already among you. 
already within you. That this new world is already beginning in and through the church of Jesus Christ. God's body, Jesus's body present, his hands and feet present, even in a fallen world. He has sent his first emissaries, his first ambassadors into this world so that we might pray that God's will would be done here on earth as it is in heaven, so that we might establish the kingdom of heaven as much as possible until it is realized in fullness in the last day. No, we do not sit and wait for the day when God will establish perfect justice. Instead, we get busy invading an unjust world with the justice of Jesus Christ. Jesus has shown us the path to justice and one of the main things that's right in the center of it is forgiveness, is the ability to take someone's wrong against us and actually forgive them, to extend forgiveness to them, to allow what Jesus has done for them to be their reality, not what they have done against us, to allow the cross to tip the scales back where they're supposed to be. So in a Jesus-centric worldview, to do justice means to both seek and extend forgiveness. It means to take the kingdom of God principles and use them in the world today to extract them and place them in the world today as much as we possibly can. And so what does that look like? You've seen it before. You've seen biblical justice before. It usually makes the news when it shows up in big ways. You've seen it in the eyes of a mother or a father who looks a defendant in the eye and forgives them for the murder of their child. You have seen biblical justice. It's not worldly justice. The world would say, that's not just, that's not fair. And from a worldly perspective, it isn't fair. But kingdom justice, God's justice, the only thing that can tip the scales involves allowing Jesus to take the sin of the world upon himself and for it to be crucified with him on the cross. That kind of justice means celebrating the fact that your sins have been forgiven, not living in the guilt of past experiences. That justice means forgiving those with whom you've held a grudge for decades. That justice means going into the world, not looking for ways that we can be offended or wronged, but extending ourselves and asking for forgiveness for those that we have wronged and granting us to those who have wronged us. And living in a new way, in a way that our world is uncomfortable with in today's world. Because we have people on both sides of every issue in today's world. People who have wronged others refuse to apologize, refuse to give in and to ask for forgiveness. May we be a people not filled with the justice of the world, but with the justice of God in such a way that we name and admit the wrongs of ourselves and our past, and we seek and ask for forgiveness not only from God, that's most important, but also for those uh, of whom we've wronged. We have people who refuse to apologize, but on the other hand, we have a culture that when someone makes any single mistake, oh my goodness, that person is to be completely 100% exiled. Cancel culture, we would call it in our world today. That person is to be removed from anything and everything and treated as if they are a leper, thrown into some leper colony and forgotten. There's nothing good that can come from that person because they said this or because they did this. May we be a people who live in a different kind of justice who are willing to extend forgiveness to those who are contrite 
and who are seeking it. May we be a people who celebrate the justice that God has given us, a justice we did not deserve, and extend that justice to others so that one day we might, along with those who have wronged us more deeply than anyone, sit under the shade of the tree of life as we hear the trickle of the water of life coming from the throne of God, along with a heavenly host singing God's praises forever and ever, right alongside our enemies, right alongside those who disagreed with us, right alongside with those who wronged us and whom we've wronged. And then we will experience God's justice perfectly. That's what it means to do justice, to try to reestablish this order of God, to always seek to make things better. It's beautiful what God does, not only giving us what we don't deserve, but giving us twofold, if not thousandfold. Isn't that beautiful? God perfects perfection. He makes the best better. And what God does through justice for us May we extend that to others. You know, oh man, what is good. God has already told you, do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly with your God. During our time of invitation this morning, I encourage you to two things. One, take this opportunity to thank God for his version of justice, for taking the wrath that you were due and that had to be dealt with. Blood had to be spilt because of what had been done. And for instead of that being yours, him willing to send his own son, to send his own self to bear that punishment. May you thank God for that justice during this time. And then may you think of how you might do justice and apply justice, that kind of justice in the world in which you live. Maybe there's a certain person with whom you have a beef Maybe there's a a particular group of people that you just yourself need to forgive. Maybe there's forgiveness you need to seek from someone that you've wronged. How might you do God's justice? As you pray about that where you are during our time of invitation, know that you can also come down and pray at the altar. I'll be down here to pray with you if you would like to do that. I'll be around after the service too if you want to talk then. But I encourage you just to allow yourself... Uh, to hear from God and to respond to God during this time of invitation. Let's stand together. I'm going to pray. Bill and Lynn are going to lead us in a song. And as they do, once again, may you just respond to God during this time. Father, again, we thank you for today. God, we thank you for your justice, for setting things right. And somehow in the midst of setting things right, not giving us what we deserve, but taking it upon yourself and then giving us more than we ever gave away. God, may we be agents of your justice. And Lord, may you show us specifically how to walk in justice, how to do justice in this world. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.